Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hi everyone, it's Doc with a special announcement. We are going to take a cruise through some of our most popular episodes from prior seasons to get everyone fired up. Now our new content will continue to drop on Saturdays each week but we will also be re-releasing these great episodes on Monday for your morning commute. I know you've all heard about Classic Rock. Well, we're gonna call these episodes Classic Doc. Sit back, settle in, and enjoy the ride. Hi everybody, it's Doc from the John Freakin' Mirpod, and I wanna let you know about our new website on WordPress. Take a few minutes and check it out. You'll be able to find pictures of the pod's guests, links to the podcast and social media accounts, ways to support the pod, how to get in touch, and our entire back catalog is there, including episode summaries. Missed these sections of the JMT episodes? You can find them there. Missed a Triple Crowner episode? Yep, that's there too. World travelers, adventure athletes, polar explorers, Barkley Marathon competitors, authors, filmmakers, documentarians, and more are waiting for you. Take a look at the new website, and just a reminder, adventure lives here. We do not live to eat and make money. We eat and make money to be able to live. That is what life means and what life is for. George Mallory. And then we waited and we got up, kept climbing, kept climbing, and finally got to the South Summit. <clears throat> and 
the weather was just shit. I mean, we could see this kind of like, well, first of all, it was incredible to be out there. And, you know, when we started climbing, it was dead quiet. It was calm. Stars were just like right there all around, you know, it's like you could reach up and touch them. And then, and then you watch this sunrise and you're like looking down at the sunrise, you know, it's just incredible. And this beautiful mountains everywhere, just like other tall mountains. And then, and then this line of clouds kind of rolling in that bad weather. And uh, we got to the South Summit and it was just a total whiteout, just a total whiteout. And I don't know if you remember, if you saw the movie Into Thin Air, but, uh, or in the book, it's where Rob, in the movie, they do a pretty good job of like Rob Hall's like, kind of like talking to his wife on the phone. And he's yeah. kind of like, that's where, he, that's where that is at the South Summit. And, um, and between the South Summit and the Hillary Step, there's a, it kind of comes down a little bit and there's a long ridge and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a stark drop off. And, uh, it was just like a whiteout. You can't see anything. So like, I don't know if you've ever been a whiteout, you know, we, a lot of ski areas or whatever. We have them all the time at polar travel. You can't see anything. It's like being inside of a ping pong ball. And so it doesn't take much to just be like, you're done. And, um, we also ran out of fixed line because we were bringing it all up. Normally in the spring, you've got a bunch of trooper groups that are bringing up rope over the course of a couple of days, fixing ropes, coming back down. And they, they all kind of share that task. We were just had our rope with us. And so we ran out of fixed line. And we still got to get across this ridge line. And so I was like, we're fucked, man. I'm like, we should turn around. This is, I've been in enough situations. Like it's starting to get, it wasn't crazy late, but it was like 11. Um, and I was like, I, you know, I've been in enough situations to know, like, this is not how things end really well. I'm Doc, and this is the John Freaking Muir Pod. Welcome to the John Freaking Muir Pod. Lace up those boots and sling on the pack for a romp through trails, short and long. With your host and renaissance man, Doc, it's time to embrace the suck. Welcome back to another week on the trail. I'm Doc, and this is the John Freaking Muir Pod. Let's start off with a reminder. If you are enjoying the podcast, take just a minute, help us out, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not enjoying the pod, well, just go ahead and keep that to yourself. All right, on to this week's episode. I am very excited to welcome to the pod a man who has done something no other person has done before or since. Go to the South Pole, the North Pole, and the top of Mount Everest in one year. It is my pleasure to give a big JFM pod welcome to explorer and author, Eric Larson. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So have you listened to the pod before, Eric? And it's okay if you haven't. No, I haven't. Okay. So we have a regular feature. We have a regular feature on the pod. Uh, it's called the Pro Tip Insight of the Week. And that, uh, that's a, towards the end of the episode, I'm going to turn to you and I'm going to say, Eric, what is your Pro Tip Insight of the Week? What, what piece of advice, what uh, insight can you share with our listeners to make their next adventure that much better? So don't be surprised when that comes up. Okay. All right. Um, also, um, I know as a polar explorer and a mountaineer, 
you, you must have a lot of gear. And so I wanted to try and pin you down and see if you could identify a favorite piece of gear or a must, must have a piece of gear. And, and if there's a particular brand that you prefer. Sure. Oh, you want to do it right now? Yeah, let's do it now. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the gear one or the tip? Uh, tip comes at the end. This is the gear one. Oh, gear. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, I same answer every time for this Garmin and reach is, um, one of my most critical pieces of gear, uh, not only from a safety perspective, but also from just a basic communication and navigational perspective. Um, you know, I've had that thing all over the planet, use it every day. Um, and it's always been reliable. And, uh, like I said, it's an important part of not only just safety, but also my general communication plan. Okay. All right. Let's, uh, before we get to your adventures and you, you've got quite a few adventures, let's, let's go back a bit and talk about your background, where you grew up and, you know, when, when you were growing up, did you have a lot of experience in the outdoors? Was that part of your family dynamic when you were a kid? Yeah, I grew up in the Midwest in Wisconsin, and uh, we spent a lot of time outside. My dad was the director of a nature center, um, and so I, I tell my kids this all the time, which is like we never stayed in a hotel, and you know our big thing um, in the summers was going you know on a canoe trip or going camping for a couple of weeks, and so that was definitely a part of who I was or what our family identity was. Um, for my part. I was just really interested in being out as much as I could, though I kind of took that to a whole nother level um, and was always just trying to find places and ways to be outside as much as I possibly could. Okay. And do you continue that same tradition with your family now? I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, I like, you know, not to get into family dynamics, but I grew up in a house that was pretty singularly focused to the fault of everything else. And, um, and, you know, part of that is really good because you, um, you know, you get to take that all that in. Um, and so for my kids, um, you know, I want them to be able to be exposed to all sorts of stuff. That being said, I think there is a lot of value in being outside no matter what the capacity is, whether it's, you know, going out and having a picnic lunch or, or, you know, going on a seven day hiking trip or anything in between. Um, so I think there's a lot of value in that connection to nature. And, and as well as for me now, as a dad, I see a lot of value in allowing my kids to be outside and unencumbered by myself or walls or whatever. And so they get a chance to run and climb and, and, you know, do whatever. And, and so they've been, they've been all over and done everything. I mean, we, we go camping all the time and, and um, have a really fun setup. And it's anything from, you know, mountain biking to just car camping to rafting, canoeing, hiking, you name it. Right, right. That's, a, that's an outstanding perspective. I'm sure you've heard the term helicopter parent. Yeah. And I think helicopter parent has actually evolved into now what's called a backpack parent where the, the parent you know, is a visual, you know, you see the, the parents sitting on the, on the kid's back in the, in the backpack kind of, you know, whispering in the ear and telling, okay, you got to go this way. got to do this. Got to do yeah. this. Really micromanaging kids. And I think that uh, really contributes to kids not being able to think for themselves and make decisions for themselves. Oh, and, man. and, um, just having that free time to explore and to, to do, to do what else. I mean, that's, that's so valuable. I remember growing up, 
you know, I, both my parents were working. And so I was a latchkey kid. I was, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. just making my own decisions and, and hanging out with friends and, and, you know, for, we, we, we made good decisions, but <laughs> uh, you know, there is that danger there, but I think it, it, it really yeah. promotes a, a sense of independent thinking and self-reliance and skills that are so, so valuable. Yeah. I think those skills and kind of philosophies translate into a lot of aspects of, of not only childhood, but also adult life. And it's not something that you just get in one second, you know, it takes practice and it takes um, making some mistakes. And so I do feel again, that when you're outside, you do have the opportunity to be able to to do all those things with, for the most part, with, without these very severe consequences, you know, like if you fall down, you get, you get back up. And um, if you get a little turnaround, um, you know, hopefully you find your way. It is a little hard at times. I would say I grew up as a latchkey kid too. And, you know, in the, in the seventies and um, it was a different world back then. I mean, we were on our own and I, I don't know if I could disconnect as much as my parents maybe did. Um, and I think about that because I think there are some, there are some real benefits. Like you said, that dependence alliance, um, I, I think are a result of that. And so, you know, I just try to be mindful about all those things and hopefully point in at least a decent direction. It's never perfect. That's right. Got to set a good foundation, but still give them enough, uh, enough of, of their own space to, to make uh, their own decisions and think things out sometimes. Totally. So you grew up in the seventies. You're, you're dating yourself. I, I know. I, I don't up- like to say that. I don't like to say that because like there go all the sponsorships, you know, uh, <laughs> no, no, man. But I grew up in the eighties too, but, uh, um, but yeah, it was like, I mean, I, I talked again, just, um, well, there's a couple of interesting aspects of that is one, you know, on the expedition side of things, the world was just different, like getting into adventure, wasn't something that you joined up with a community, especially in Wisconsin. Um, so all of the things that I did were very self-motivated and self-reliant. And I had to find out the information on my own and get experience by my own. And, and there wasn't this kind of like very clear, like there was no thing as like an out, outdoor ambassador or an athlete, you know, like maybe you saw a few pictures of some tents in National Geographic once a year, but that was about it. Um, so it was just different in that sense. Um, and of course the technology was a lot different too. So I, t- I talked to my kids there. My son asked me the other day, he's like, well, how did you call people when you're in the car? I'm like, it didn't happen. <laughs> so. Yeah. I tell my kids I had to get up and change the channel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally. Same. Yeah. And there was only four channels or whatever it was. That's right. That's right. We didn't walk around with the internet in our pocket. You know, we no, had, no. You, you had to look something up. You had to go to the library or, or look through the encyclopedias to find totally. out the, the information. Different yeah. world. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, like I, I, I was, I mean, I, you know, whatever, I'm not saying now is bad or, 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 or then was better. It was just different. And I think when we talk about some of these things now, you kind of have to look at it, the context of how much the world has changed and not only just the past 40 years or 50 years or whatever it is, but also just within the last 10 years as well. Right. I think, I think the human brain is wired to remember good things longer and forget the bad things. I think that's why, why women are able to have more than one child. They forget about all the pain and just remember that the good stuff. And I think that it's just a, it's just a tendency of our brains to, to kind of, 
forget the negative stuff. It wasn't that we yeah. didn't have problems back then. We certainly yeah. had problems, but uh, there's the tendency to think about, you know, the past as the good old days. Yeah, totally. And I think, um, I think also just your kind of demeanor and your mindset for myself, I'm definitely an optimist. And so I always try to look at the good of things. Um, but yeah, of course I remember all the positives. My mom would say that I remember all the negative things, but, uh, um, you know, I think that actually also is a good expedition skill set as well. Um, at least for the types of trips that I do when we're just kind of muddling through one bad situation after the next. And you kind of have to, 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 to be able to move on past that trip and potentially do another hard, difficult thing. You, you definitely have to find the crystals and all that mud. <laughs> right. Now I, I heard you mentioned backpacking briefly uh, when you're going through your back background, have you had much experience doing any kind of through hiking or multi-day backpacking trips? I mean, I've done a bunch of backpacking um, over the years. I mean, it's such an it's such a um, easy sport to access, um, and I'm a huge fan of just human powered travel in general. Um, and you know, I would say backpacking is very similar to polar travel in the sense that you're, you know, this small person in this big space, and and it does take a long time to traverse these areas. It's a lot of time. Um, so yeah, I've spent, uh, uh, you know, all sorts of different, um, times hiking. I was a backcountry ranger in Alaska and we were backpacking all the time. And I had my, this old, like external frame camp trails pack and we would have to haul, you know, haul in like four or five days worth of food and gear and like tools and stuff. And it wasn't the right fit for me. And I had to twist the, the, um, hip strap so that it would fit around my, waist and and it was just like a little mesh on the metal frame and it would give me bruises on the back i'd have to walk like at an, by the end of the you know those kind of stints that we would do i'd have to be walking like hunched over and um that was brutal but you know i have to, you know i lived out in colorado back in the day um prior to moving around again did a, a bunch of hiking here which is just phenomenal there's so many awesome wilderness areas I lived in Northern Minnesota for a long time. There's a superior hiking trail there, which, you know, I was on somewhat regularly either with friends and I do a lot of just like hiking and photography and training. So I'm on trails all the time. I've never done a, um, not necessarily for lack of interest. It's just, I'm, I'm interested in a lot of other things too. I've never done a big, um, through hike. Um, <laughs> Although my son, the other last month, he's like, I want to hike the Appalachian Trail. I'm like, okay, sure, let's go do it. Um, and then I've also been doing these kind of multi-sport adventures for the past few years, which is kind of taking a state and going from one border to the next and dividing it up by three sports. So it's usually like a bike, a hike, and then um, some sort of water thing. And so I've had some really nice opportunities to hike through areas that I've never hiked before. Like, you know, I was from Wisconsin. I never really did much hiking there. And I was on the ice age trail for three days, which was awesome. Um, we did a trip across New York, kayaking, hiking and, and biking and hiked through, um, you know, the Adirondacks, which I had never done and pretty much got my ass handed to me. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and even hiked through Kansas, which was incredible. So um, it's, it's, it's not my main pursuit, but it, it occupies a significant amount of my time, I would say. 
so it sounds like you you have these self-created triathlons that go across states right is that uh, yeah an accurate description I, yeah yeah i call them state-a-thons it's kind state-a-thons. of this unique, nice yeah. well it's a throwback to how i got involved with it, it adventure and you know quite honestly you know the question about backpacking i just like being outside and camping like i call myself a professional camper i don't care what the mode is I just want to be outside and, and doing something and, and seeing some new terrain or the same terrain. But, um, you know, again, back in the day, there wasn't this clear path about or groups or whatever. And so I was just didn't know what to do. So I would, you know, grab a canoe and my buddy and we'd canoe down our little river and then we'd portage through, you know, like main street and then we'd keep going and we'd stop and make a fire and cook a chicken on a spit. And, um, as I got a little older, we would, you know, do some crazy bike things. And this was before pack rafts. We didn't, we'd get some like kids inner tubes and we'd swim across lakes with our bikes on top. And it was me just really trying to discover those places in unique ways. Um, and what I felt was, um, well, first of all, I've always felt that, you know, any sort of human travel is just a great way to experience an area. Unlike, um, you know, driving in a car, flying a plane or whatever, those are different. You you get an idea of the scale and scope of a place, but it's when your feet are on the ground in some way, or you're, you're working for every, you know, foot forward, it becomes a much different experience. And, um, and I also felt that a lot of people in the adventure community were kind of focused on these big iconic things, even through hikes, you know, and, um, you know, not everybody has access to these bigger through hike areas. Not everybody has the ability to take off this amount of time to go do some sort of bigger adventure. And so I, I, I just kind of came up with this idea and it's nothing new. I mean, other people are doing similar things, but it was more about this idea of that adventure is everywhere. And that if you kind of put some arbitrary parameters on something, you know, I said one border of the state to the next, it could be your County. It could be your city. It could be whatever. Um, and then three sports, I was just like, okay, let's just do three sports. And then it becomes really compelling and interesting to me because one, I get to do some fun planning. I get to figure out like, how can I connect these two points in a compelling line that makes sense? That's, that's somewhat, natural um you know what are the logistics involved with that and then also i like to take whatever i think is a realistic amount of time and then chop down that a little bit so it becomes more difficult as well um and i gotta say like i've been i've done i haven't done a ton of them but i've done colorado new york wisconsin kansas and they've all been they've all had their kind of epic challenges so four Um, four state-a-thons you've done yeah. Yeah. And they're nice. Cause I, I kind of squeeze them into my schedule now. Um, you know, in between when I'm kind of doing something else, great train hiking, I'm trying to get 25 miles and doing that in Adirondacks is like an impossible for somebody like me, you know? And so it's like, you know, 6am to 10am or 10pm, you know, nonstop. Um, and then of course I'm getting lost cause I don't, you know, it's just when you're stringing stuff together, it's navigation can be not, crazy challenging but it's you know it there's there's enough variability out there and um yeah so they end up being quite physically challenging and then the logistics side and then we usually try to um 
partner with some sort of area nonprofit, I kind of have a philosophy of have fun and do good. And so I feel that adventure has given me a lot of really great opportunities, a lot of really incredible kind of life lessons and philosophies. And so um, try to work with some of my current sponsors and, and do some sort of GoFundMe page or whatever it is for a nonprofit in that area. And so we'll raise, you know, four or $5,000 for, for different organizations that are regionally based in that state. Right. Right. Now, you know, I, I said at the, the top of the show that you had done uh, South Pole, North Pole, top of Mount Everest. And I think you're the only person to have done that. Is that accurate? In a year. Yeah. In a year. That's right. In a, in a, in a year. And mm-hmm. I would also now venture to say that you're the first, the first person to do four state-a-thons. I don't, I'm not sure that anybody else is out there doing that. Yeah. And, and quite honestly, that's part of my um, mindset, I guess, or emphasis or goal or however you want to word it. I, I think there's, for me, I want to be original in what I do. Um, I, you know, you know, some things are somewhat arbitrary, like, um, but when I see 10 people going this way, I kind of want to go this way. And so part of the joy for me of adventure is, is kind of blazing, quote unquote, blazing my own trail, so to speak. And, you know, once I'm able to, um, you know, in the state of town things connect some of these things, it becomes much more interesting to me than just hiking a trail that, you know, has some pretty clear markers or whatever. And, and I, I love it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love being outside and I love beautiful scenery and, and all this kind of stuff, but I like that little bit of extra. And so my philosophy has always been to try to push that leading edge of adventure and not in some stupid kind of gimmicky way, but just ways that I feel like are compelling, that are challenging, that have a unique narrative to them um, that uh, are fun, you know? Um, and that's, and that's kind of how I'm always thinking about things. Right, right. It's interesting you, you, you use those words, trailblazer or blazing a trail. I actually was taking some notes as you were talking, and uh, I, I have now in a box, uh, before you said it, I said trailblazer, because you're out there doing stuff that is unique, uh, not only from your, your epic year where you did the, the two poles and Mount Everest, but also, you know, kind of teaching yourself uh, these outdoor explorer skills and uh, these state-a-thons, you know, it's, it's outside the box. It's unique and it's, it's, you know, you're blazing your own trail out there. That's yeah. Awesome. And the, the other thing with the um, state-a-thons, it's kind of, like I said earlier, it's this idea of adventure is everywhere. And a lot of my expeditions really um, are about these bigger ideas than just myself. And it's just a reminder for everybody. Like, again, if you're, if you pick up backpacker magazine, there's, you're not going to find a, a lot of stories about Iowa in there. Um, and, uh, you know, that doesn't mean there aren't any compelling adventures to be had there or great hikes or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, in this day and age and social media and inundated with these kind of like hyper real things, we all myself included need these reminders like, Hey, we can do, some pretty interesting things on our own. We can set up this thing, be original within this small little box. We can be challenged in my backyard. Um, we kind of, I started another side little gig called Backyard Epics. And again, this wasn't necessarily about being just original on my own, but it's about sharing that idea. It's like, hey, you can create your own, you know, multi-sport adventure and 
you know, kind of, we'll see if I ever get this done, but I have the URL. Um, but, you know, you can log your own, you know, three sport adventure, maybe somebody else copies it, or maybe you race it or whatever. But, but again, just as this reminder to people, like, you don't always have to be looking off far and, and somewhere else. There are a lot of things that you can do. And, and I think that starts opening up nature and adventure in a much more accessible way. It's not this elitist thing. It's right. something that anybody can do. And, and, you know, another one of my kind of philosophies is the idea of just starting small. Like, you know, if you've never backpacked before, it's probably not a good idea to go hike the AT trail your first time out or even a week long trip, you know, do an overnight. Um, and I've had a couple, I've had a couple of guests that uh, have gone full blast into hiking and done a serious big trip like that as their, their first trip. Yeah. I mean, it's not impossible. There's no question that said, are you going to, are you going to have a, a better first couple of weeks if you've done some other trips? Most definitely. Right. You know, right. So backyard epic, um, backyard epics, that's not literally in your backyard. That's kind of in your, in your hometown. Uh, it could be anywhere. I in mean, your you area, be, you can set up yeah. your own multi, multi-sport. Yeah. yeah. I think there's, there's all, there's all sorts of opportunities. I mean, it could be in a city, it could be in your County could be in your backyard. You know, it just, the, the point is, is that there are a lot of opportunities to have some adventures. We did a, a trip here in Crested Butte where I live now in Colorado, uh, kind of on a similar vein. It wasn't across the state. It was just three days. And we, you know, we bike 35 miles, we hiked 12 miles, and then we paddle boarded a couple miles and we connected these, this kind of wilderness area to some other places that um, were just really amazing. Um, and it's just, again, we, you just set those arbitrary parameters and now all of a sudden it's a challenge. Like, how do we get our bikes? How do we get our backpacks? What bikes are we going to do? Um, you know, we need to paddle on water. It's flat water. What are the wind, what are the conditions going to be like? You know, where is our put in? Where's our takeout? Um, uh, there, you, you mentioned some stuff that I don't want to skip over. I want to, I want to go back to it a little bit, but you have me, you have me thinking now about, you know, these multi-sport adventures and wanted to know if you've ever heard of the picnic. Oh, of course. Yeah. And that's where, and that's where I, it, it, you know, and, and there, there are other people, I mean, you know, Alex Honnold and Cedar Wright were out in the Cascades spiking and climbing and, you know, people, it's not any sort of like new idea. Right. Um, and the picnic uh, is awesome. I mean, I had heard about that. And of course, as soon as I saw that, whenever the first time was, I was like, Oh yeah, that's awesome. So, I mean, there's definitely like, um, kind of a groundswell of this type of adventure that's goes on, especially as, you know, more of these iconic things kind of get checked off. Um, and so I think a lot of that is really positive because it creates these opportunities to do all these other things in, in areas that you wouldn't think of. Like, for example, we were, I was in Kansas this summer doing a trip and it was incredible. You know, it was, and we biked in like 95 degree heat and, 100% humidity just about and then hiked uh through a pretty incredible area and then paddled down the Kansas River so um yeah I mean I I'm just kind of pigging back on that but but I do think you know taking that thing and attaching a bigger idea than just yourself has has some importance um hopefully yeah. I mean who knows? For, for for our listeners out there who may be tuning in for the first time um uh, the picnic is a multi-sport adventure out in, um, you start at Jackson hole, right. Mm -hmm. And you ride your bike for, I don't know, 
20 something miles out to Jenny Lake. You swim two miles across Jenny Lake and then you climb the Grand Teton. Yeah. And then you turn around and you do it in reverse. Come back. Yeah. That's right. You yeah. come back. And I, yeah. I learned about that on an episode with Mike Chambers from yeah. Uh, yeah, I know, Mike. Uh, Beat Monday. And that was uh, one of the episodes that they did for, for, that, for that show. And it, it really kicked his butt. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. And that's what I like. And that's part of one of the reasons why I like big expeditions. Cause it's different than just like going to the gym and lifting weights. I mean, um, Mike and, um, what's his partner's name? Who's also good. Um, I mean, he's just ripped. He's like yeah. three of me. Yeah. Um, he is Jason Anton. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's right. Uh, and I know both of those guys pretty well and, and kind of consulted them on some Greenland stuff that they did, nice. but, uh, and, and, Jason's fit is all get out. So he doesn't need any of my advice, but, um, but for the average person like myself, there's a difference of being out and that wear and tear, that repetitive use that your body, um, gets over those longer things. It's not necessarily like the most difficult thing in that second, Mm -hmm. but it's like, you know, this hour and the next hour and continuously being on your feet. And that's what I like because that's a little bit more of a chess game. And then you have to not only tie in your training, but your planning and, and your self care and, and your nutrition and, and navigating the weather and all the act farther on down the road. Um, and that's what part of my joy is in, in the bigger expeditions as well, because it's, it's um, there's a cumulative effect that I think people oftentimes overlook. Right. Now, when you were talking about uh, growing up and, and even I think your young adulthood, you mentioned a lot of states. You mentioned Wisconsin, you mentioned Alaska, Colorado, Minnesota, back to Colorado. Yeah. Did you did you live sort of a nomadic uh, lifestyle growing up? Did your family move a lot? Or no, no. From- this was after college. After, after college. college. Okay. I moved around a lot. Yeah, I did a lot of seasonal work. So I, you know, I uh, went to college and, and, probably shouldn't have gone to college. I was a crazy dude. Um, and, uh, but I managed to hone it in cause I thought, man, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to finish. But as soon as I got done, I was just gone. I was gone. And so I was just trying to eat up as much stuff as I could. And I also, again, you know, my world went from like this to just everything. And once I realized that, that if you could sacrifice, you know, stability, money, um, insurance or whatever, if you were willing to sacrifice all those things, you could do whatever you want. And so, you know, I just went great, you know, just all out and, you know, I didn't have any money. I was, had student loans. And so I, you know, I, there's some good tracks that you can get in like with Outward Bound or Knowles or whatever, but I had never had the financial ability to do those. And so it was always for me working different jobs and trying to find, you know, the next interesting thing that I could do and learn. And, um, you know, so yeah, I was a backcountry ranger in Alaska as a whitewater guide in Colorado. I was a bike mechanic on a bike tour across, um, uh, the United States carpenter chimney sweep. Uh, you know, I became a dog musher as well. I'd never even seen a sled dog before. Um, and, and then as a dog musher, then I was like, Oh yeah, I get it now. This is awesome. That's quite the resume. I've had way too many jobs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I'm, I'm assuming that you 
you didn't do uh, carpentry work or uh, be a dog musher to pay for your, your more recent expeditions to the South Pole, North Pole, and, and Everest. You, you mentioned sponsors. How did that all evolve from just trying, you know, living kind of hand to mouth and saving up, uh, cobbling up enough money to pay for, you know, the next adventure to being able to put something like the North Pole, South Pole, Everest trip? Yeah, it was, it was a little process. And, and of course, back in the day, we didn't even think about sponsorship. It just wasn't an option. There was no, I remember I got like a 40% deal on some mittens one time and I thought I was just like, I had reached the top. You big know? time, big time right there. <laughs> and, um, but it just, it, again, this was like in the mid nineties and, and, and early 2000s just wasn't the same. So you just, I mean, I, and part of that is really good because I did trips cause I was interested in them. I took jobs cause I was interested in them. I did a lot of things on my own, made a lot of huge mistakes and nobody saw it, you know, and I, and I learned from it and moved on. But, um, I had started working with bigger expeditions and started to get glimpses into what the sponsorship world was. And in the early two, 2000, 2001, I was the base camp manager for a four month long dog sled expedition. So I started to get a glimpse of how that whole world worked and they had national geographic on board and, you know, it was definitely like this higher echelon type of the thing. And I was just in there eating everything up that I could, you know, just, taking mental notes and, and, and seeing everything. And, and then through that, I got introduced to another kind of polar guy who lived in my small town in Northern Minnesota. And, and, um, we started kind of hanging out more and then started, um, you know, working on this big North pole project in 2003, I believe, or two or something like that. And that's kind of when, you know, he had already been down that path doing a couple big expeditions. And so he was uh, very much a mentor for me in that. And I also just kind of thought about different ideas and tried to bring those to the table. And, um, but, but it was a necessity because, you know, like a polar expedition, like the budget of our first trip was $350,000, you know, that's just, that's just not, you know, that's not something I have laying around in a coffee can. That's a lot of dog mushing right there. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of everything. Um, and, and mentor, your mentor is anybody we we may have heard of Lonnie Dupree, Lonnie Dupree, uh, another Minnesota guy, um, mentor in some ways and not mentor in other ways, I will say (laughs) but I, you know, again, I'm an optimist and I choose to look at the good things. Um, I learned a lot about not what, what not to do as well, but another story for another time. Um, but yeah. And so, you know, we were able to pull that trip off and, but we spent three years planning and preparing that for that one single trip. And, and kind of once I went through that process and my prior experience, I just, had enough insight into what was going on and simultaneously the world was you know social media was starting up and I started kind of doing a lot of outreach and and so it's it's always a process I mean even today it's not like people are just calling me up and handing me checks you know it's it's about creating value and it's a it's a it's a huge hustle um as well in the good way Mm -hmm. um but it's, and it's about connections and all sorts of other stuff. So, I mean, I would say that, you know, that, that first stuff that we did, which was in 2001 and now it's almost 20 years later, I've learned a lot and it's still just as much hard work, you know, 
it's, it's just different kinds of hard work. It's, you know, there's some aspects are easier. You know, I can send an email to a company and get a reply guaranteed, but um, uh, it's just, it's always a challenge. Right. And, and I think the other thing is, is I think, you know, the sponsorship side of things, I, I get a lot of emails from people about like, well, how do I get sponsored? And I I give people a lot of advice that they don't like, um, which is to get really good at something take about five or 10 years and become an expert and then plan something original and then get sponsored. But nobody wants to hear that. And, and I also think there is some margins in there for the influencer stuff and, and brand ambassador things that are a little different, but um, I do feel that the sponsorship is not a right. It's a privilege. Yeah. And so it's something that I take pretty seriously, uh, not pretty serious, very seriously. And it's, it's a full-time job. You know, it's yep. not like, again, people are just handing me stuff and be like, oh, all right, see you in another year. We'll give you some more stuff. You know, that's not how it works. All right. That's what I, that's what I told Mrs. Doc, my, my wife. I said, Hey, you know, I got, I got to devote 10 years to this podcasting thing before, you know, the sponsorships are going to start. Rolling. Yeah. 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 You, you gotta, you gotta put in your time. I tell my wife that same thing. And, and I, I'm like, it's a, I go, it's A to M, A to M, which is like, if you do this thing right here, it's not, you do it. And then B happens and everything's great. It's B influences C and C kind of dings off a D and D circles around for a while. And then all of a sudden it somehow gets to E, you know, and then three years later, finally you're at M and there's the, there's the something. So I like that. I like that. That's awesome. A to yeah. M and, and you, we're just happy that it's not A to Z, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes it is, but you know, it's definitely not A to B. So yeah. Hey, do you want to give a shout out to your, any of your sponsors? I mean, I work with a lot of great companies. Um, you know, I've been with MSR and Thermarest for quite some time now. Work with Thermarest Design, a really awesome uh, sleeping bag called the Polar Ranger. Uh, you can find it online, minus 20 bag that I use on all my expeditions. MSR makes some of the best products. And then I've been working with a great company the last couple of years called Sirius Innovation, hats, gloves, glove liners, base layers. Um, I do not like being cold. Uh, I like being, I like being really warm in cold places. So Cirrus has been a really great partner for me. That, that just caught me a little bit funny because, you know, spending so much time at the South pole, North pole and top of Everest and not, not liking uh, being cold. That's uh it's kind of a, a dichotomy there. It is, but uh, you know, that's how I was built. What can I say? I like what I, I do. I am drawn to, kind of these extreme environments, uh, you know, for me, it's cold, but like when I go to the desert or wherever, um, I, I'm, I'm equally as intrigued, but I like this idea of extreme and trying to like eke out some sort of existence in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but like, yeah, like I said, being cold is not a fun experience. I mean, I get it. It's painful. Um, but what I do like to do is be comfortable in those environments. And there's times, every hour where I'm one, one type of cold or the other, but you know, I try to minimize the peaks and the troughs, but those times when I'm just perfect and I'm traveling wrong and it's just a shit storm out there, man, that's like, that's a good moment that you remember. Nice. Ever cross paths with Mike Horn? Uh, I haven't, I don't know if we've emailed or not, but, um, there's a few polar people out there. And I think, you know, Mike and another, his partner that he's done a couple of trips with Berga Ausland. Uh, they did their most, most recent uh, trip across the Arctic ocean, both really, um, you know, pushing the, the edge of stuff. And, yeah. 
um, I draw a lot of inspiration from, from other people, those guys, especially. Yeah. I've had a couple of guests that have uh, crossed paths, spent a little bit of time with him and just talked about how inspirational he is and, and just the things that he's doing out there, just nuts. Yeah. And I think that's that for me, that's, you know, I didn't necessarily model my career after him. He's a little older than me, but mm -hmm. I think we're the similar mindset, which is, you know, trying to still blaze that trail, trying to, to push that leading edge in whatever way. And it's, you know, the world has been explored, but there are still some opportunities in there to kind of keep pushing those human limits in that place. And so to me, that's always exciting. All right. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get down into the nitty gritty of the epic year of the uh, South Pole, North Pole, and top of Everest. And I also want to touch base with Eric about his book on thin ice. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. From the back country to the backyard, we believe everyone deserves the highest level of protection. Since 1984, Sawyer Products offers the best, most technologically advanced solutions for protection against sun, bugs, and water. Using time-released liposome technology, topical insect repellents, and new standards in water filtration. And with every Sawyer product you buy, you are helping to provide clean water through 140 charities in 80 countries with their long-lasting water filters. Every Sawyer product you buy is an investment in our common humanity. Choose Sawyer and keep the adventure going knowing that their products have been tested and chosen by those who count on serious protection on the trail all day long. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere, and even earn money, all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your pod podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like my creativity has raised to another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. Hi, my name is Eric Larson. I'm a polar adventurer and expedition guide, and I want to welcome you to the John Freaking Mirror pod. And welcome back. Hey, Eric, I forgot to ask you at the, at the top of the show, do you have a trail name? Did you ever pick up a trail name on any no, backpacking trips? No, no, I, no, I'm not, I'm not totally into that. It's funny though. I do, I do like the concept and I've done some kind of uh, media events and, and I'll always like give people random trail names just for fun. Um, like snow walker. I don't know what, you know, um, and I'm pretty good at it actually, I will say like just talking to people like what's, wh what's really interesting to you. And just like in a couple minutes, like giving them a name. Um, but no, I've never, I'm a, I'm a, uh, not a solo guy, but a small group guy. Like it, it would, I, I've thought about the AT trail and things like that. I would have a real hard time mingling in those areas long enough. I just, I'm real, uh, I like being on my own. Yeah. Um, 
but uh, no, well, no trail line. Okay. Well, um, if you're, if you're a solo guy, AT is not for you. It should be the PCT. It's a lot yeah. more remote, uh, not yeah. close to civilization. You get out there, you're on your own away from everybody. Yeah. All right. Cause we, we go strictly by trail name on the show. So I was, I was looking forward to, I wondered if, if uh, polar explorers also had that same kind of tradition of uh, trail no. names. Polar explorers are solitary introverts by their nature. So it's like <laughs> not happening. Okay. All right. So, Hey, let's, let's talk about 10 years ago, 2010. How did the idea come up and how did you organize all the logistics and fund the South? Was it in that order? South pole, North pole, top of Everest, or was it a different yeah. order? No, that was the order. That was the order. Okay. So. Yeah. And, and the order was uh, really, um, you know, about the seasonality of when you can travel to each one of those places. The only time you go to Antarctica is in Antarctic summer, which is November, December, and a little bit of January. Um, you know, I had done a summer North Pole expedition previously. That was hard as F. Um, and it was also expensive. But the traditional season is March and April, which ties into and into May, which ties into the Everest season. So I kind of realized that I would have to do Everest in the fall if I was going to try to meet all that stuff up. Mm -hmm. Um, And I actually originally thought, you know, the other way to do it would be to lead off with Everest potentially. But quite honestly, when I was starting out and ready to go, I didn't have any money. So, um, yeah. And, and, and basically I got the idea in, you know, maybe 2007, I had gotten some email from somebody who wanted to do a North pole trip and then maybe go to the South pole, you know, back to back. And I was like, Oh, wow, that's a cool idea. I would love to go to Antarctica. You know, I don't really think them, you know, in, in the U S polar travel is not really that like, I, you know, it's not like alpine skiing or football or, you know, what any, basically any other thing has like people that are coming up and there's an industry associated with it, you know, poor travelers like me and then nobody. Um, so it's not a really good business venture, uh, for companies. And, uh, so I didn't think I would get any funding to go to Antarctica. And I also, people had done some back-to-back polar trips like that. So it was kind of terra cognita as far as I was concerned, but then I as I started kind of digging around, you know, a lot of people considered Everest the third pole, like in the twenties and the thirties. And it was like the third pole getting to the third pole, the highest point on the planet. And as I did more research, I realized that, you know, only a a handful of people like 10 at the time, 10 or 14 people had, had been to all three of those places um, in big expeditions and no one had ever done them in a shorter continuous timeframe. And I thought, wow, well that, makes a really unique trip. Um, and it's also on a personal level, that was a really interesting challenge for me because I hadn't really done any mountaineering at all. And, um, so I knew that I would need to really focus on that, but then also this bigger kind of logistical challenge of getting into all these three places. It just really met a lot of my kind of needs and then as, or, you know, interests and then kind of on this bigger idea of communicating about the environment, which is, uh, you know, a really important aspect of me and what I studied and what I do. Um, And so I felt like that was a really compelling kind of narrative of going to these last great frozen wildernesses and and documenting how they're changing. Um, And so that's kind of how it all 
came about. And it's a little, and I was actually planning another trip at the time, but then this, this idea kept nagging at me. And what I've learned is there's just this process that I go through until one idea just sticks and then it's like, boom. And then that's the best time. Cause then you just start working on that one thing and mm-hmm. then everything else fades away. But this was, you know, 2007, 2008 had the height of the financial housing crisis. That's right. And so funding was just, a, I mean, I was bartending, I was cleaning chimneys. And this is already after having been on the Tonight Show two times from our prior expeditions and, um, you know, all this other stuff and success. But I was living in my buddy's basement, sleeping on a beach at times, you know, um, like I said, bartending, barely making ends meet and just trying to, you know, no, you know, get another no, another no, another no. And I was just, man, I was ready to just throw in the towel. And I got lucky in the sense that I got, um, but all the time still kind of working on this communication plan and reaching out to media people and just building these relationships over, you know, year doing presentations anywhere. Anytime I could do a presentation, I would travel all over. And, um, and then uh, I got, I got really lucky. I got a job offer to guide a South Pole expedition and uh, never, have never been to Antarctica, but um, so I took that and that kind of just opened up a little bit just inside of me because I was able to go down do that trip, learn more about Antarctica on a shorter, on a shorter route, 42 days route to the South pole. Um, and just have all my costs. I actually was get it was a job and, um, just kind of jump started me too. And then at that time, then I was able to be like, all right, well, the deadline's coming up. I'm starting this thing next year. What's it going to be? Yes or no? No. Okay. Perfect. How about you? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. $2. Great. Thank you. Well, next person. No. Okay. Thank you. Not like, okay, yeah, no problem. Take your time. So, um, and that just kind of momentum just kind of started snowballing. That being said, I still didn't have much money in the next year, but I was able to do another South pole guided expedition guiding mm-hmm. on that route that I had originally planned. Um, got now, Eric, Eric, how do, you, how do you, how do you get a, a job as a South Matt, how do you get a job as a South Pole or an Antarctic uh, guide not having done it before? Did they, did they just give you, well, hey, here, here's the map. Here's the map. Here's, uh, here's the 10 people you're guiding. You know, hit the trail. Get going. How, do, yeah. how does that work? Well, honestly, I've done a lot of guiding like that in places <laughs> that I don't know. Prior, as a dog mushing guide, my boss was crazy. And he would just draw this pencil line across wherever and he'd be like turn right at the car and it would be like 10 feet of snow on the ground there you don't see any car so um uh but antarctica realistically like polar travel is the same no matter where you go but but quite honestly like antarctica is a lot easier travel than the arctic ocean the north pole so having already done a prior north pole expedition that was one of the hardest north pole the summer expedition north pole which again was probably at the time one of the hardest expeditions anybody had ever done and a a big unknown and was just crazy and insane and man I was crying like almost every day Uh, having gotten through that 62 days on the ice like the south pole is a piece of cake and so you know I had I had cut my teeth and had a lot of other prior guiding experience so I didn't just show up like um you know, out of the blue and in Antarctica, like the map, like I, I, I draw a map for the clients when I go now and I'm just like, I take a white sheet of paper and I put an X on the bottom and I put an X on the top 
And I'm like, this is our map that we're following. And that's what it is. You just, you know, I put in my GPS 90 degrees South and that's what we do every day. We just start skiing that every day. So, um, so yeah, so I was able to then go back the next year, which would be kind of my first leg of the save the poles trip, which was kind of how I designed it anyways. It was my little like fail safe. So I did my route that I wanted to do, which was a 50 or 48 day route called the Hercules Inlet route. So it's from the edge of the continent to the South pole. And it's kind of, it's kind of this traditional like route to the South pole. And so that's how I was able to do that. Then I got back again, no money, but I had had all these relationships. And so I was just calling everybody again and, um, luckily got connected to Microsoft and, and had to meet and talk to a woman there. And I was like, Oh, I'll be out in Seattle next week. And she's okay. We'll stop by. Cause that's my thing. And of course I had no plans to be out there. So I went and got a plane ticket real quick, flew out. And, and then we got some money together from them last minute. And, and we still needed a rescue deposit. So we mortgaged my buddy, my expedition partner's house and his kid's college fund um, to be able to pay for the rescue deposit, which was a hundred grand and got another guy to come in with some other funding from a university. And we just cobbled it all together. I mean, it was, a, it's, it was crazy. And then we spent all that on the North pole and managed to pull that trip off. And then I got back and I was broke and I started the whole process over, flew over to Everest base camp and and, or flew over to Nepal at the end of August, hiked up to Everest Base Camp, was in Everest Base Camp calling my sponsors being like, okay, is that check coming? Because, you know, <laughs> so it was just, and then I was, you know, 50 or 80 grand in debt when it was all done. I mean, I was, I, I rolled the dice on that baby, but I was in it, you know, I was in it, I was committed and, and um, I was, you know, it didn't necessarily influence my decision making, but it influenced my drive and, and, um, I, I kind of laid it all bare on that one. Yeah. How many days? Uh, South, South pole? pole trip. Sorry. South pole. That trip. was a 48 day expedition around 700, day. 730 miles. North pole was 51 days, uh, 550 miles. And then we were about 45 days on Everest. And I wanted to ask you when you, the, the polar expeditions, especially any, any sense of uh, history when you're out there knowing, you know, the, the, the struggles that, you know, polar explorers from a century ago had and the, the lives that were lost. And, and here you are, you know, doing that same thing. Uh, oh yeah. Any, yeah. any just, yeah. I mean, I, I, kind of I, inspiring. yeah, well it's as well as pathetic. Cause you're like hundred years gone by, I'm still doing the same thing. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I read a ton of, uh, of expedition journals and adventure books. I mean, that was my diet for so long. And so, you know, when I read those, I was always inspired and, and kind of with the mindset of like, Oh, what went wrong here? Like, what, what was this little thing about? What was this piece of gear? What was this like team dynamics thing? Um, same thing with mountaineering too, you know, just kind of trying to learn from those people that have come before me. So the history uh, you know, we're standing on the strollers of giants for sure. Um, in these types of expeditions. So it's not lost on me at all. Um, you know, we just passed the um, anniversary of when Amundsen got to the South Pole a few days ago, 14th of December. So those things are, are very stark for me in terms of we were like, I understand their passion. I understand their drive. I understand 
what they went through. Um, I've learned a lot from them as a result. And, uh, you know, quite honestly, that type of struggle is the exception in society. And so I, there's some, you know, I feel a little like camaraderie with those people too. You know, we've mm-hmm. experienced a lot of the, the same things. Yeah, absolutely. Now of the three, which was the toughest? <laughs> that's the, that's the million dollar question. Yeah. I had North pole is the hardest expedition on the planet. Hands down. The Arctic ocean is one of the most extreme environments on the planet. It's, it's um, you know, just harsh and it's extreme cold. Uh, it's humid um it's uh the ice is moving um it's oftentimes pushing you backwards uh polar bears you know like it's just the list goes on and on and on it's it's every step is in the, the unknown even on everest you know like you know i climbed through the south call and so that's like a known route you know like that's but the arctic ocean is constantly changing the surface is constantly shifting it's always uncertain and so there's just this kind of level of of um uncertainty that you just never can get comfortable with and and then just the physical being in that environment is really difficult it's just hard on your body and even just being in a tent is difficult um, and cold and uncomfortable. And so there's just no relief. It's not like, you know, I always love camping in the summer and where you just, I just love laying in the dirt, you know, in front of my tent and like eating freeze dried food, you know, like on my elbow, like we're either moving or we're in the tent. Like there's no in between on those trips. And, you know, it's death by 1000 cuts every little piece of energy you know you lose energy every day that never returns and it's that kind of chess game that I was talking about earlier and so um and it's just difficult it's just continuously difficult and unrelenting yeah now I have I have yet to to be able to talk to somebody who has stood atop Everest and so I'm really excited that uh, you're here tonight to to kind of share that experience now you said was it 45 days to, to yeah I mean from base portion, camp portion of the trip mm-hmm. or maybe from fly camera we're flying up from hiking up from Lukla so I mean I think we were in base camp about 30 maybe a little over 30 days at base camp till the summit and then back down again yeah mm-hmm. No, so I, I read Into Thin Air by Crack uh, Hour and uh, mm-hmm. so, sounded miserable. And so 30 days in base camp, was that to, to acclimatize? And Well, not 30 days total, but, but so our whole, I think our whole trip was, I got to go back into the archives here, but I think it was like 45 days from, you know, being in uh, the Kumbu Valley. So, you know, we fly into a place called Luklo, which is around 9,000 feet take a bunch of days, 10 days or so to hike up to Everest base camp, which is around 17.5, 17.6. Once you get to base camp, then your job is to move gear up the mountain and acclimatize. And because we were climbing in the fall, there's just no other people on the mountain. The main climbing season is in the spring. So we, um, there was a Czech team there that was attempting Lhotse. There was a Japanese team. Those guys dropped out pretty quickly. And then that just left myself and a few Sherpas. So we're bringing stuff up, coming back down and resting for a couple of days, bringing stuff up higher, coming back down and resting, getting the ropes fixed uh, up higher. And so, you know, I wasn't involved with a lot of the rope fixing. Um, 
and there wasn't a lot done overall, but um, it was uh, hard, but not the hardest thing I've ever done. So uh, I think again, like I had done years of bigger expeditions. And so there's an expedition mentality that goes into, um, uh, you know, any of these big trips that once you kind of understand your body and your, your um, nutritional needs and, and how sleep plays in a role, the most difficult was kind of like going into these unknowns and then coming back into known and comfort. And so like in the North Pole, it's talking about everything is unknown. And so like that you're on a high level alert all the time, but you kind of like get to here. Mm-hmm. And on Everest for me, because I had never climbed Everest before or been up above, you know, 7,000 meters or whatever, it was kind of like, you know, we come up to a new area, like just to the top of the Kumbu Glacier, and that would be scary for me. But then we come back, you know, down and then rest. Next time up, no big deal, you know? So I'm like down here, but then we keep going up the Western Kumbu. And then now all of a sudden that's a new thing and then coming back down and I'm relaxed again, you know, and then relax, 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 and then going up the, um, to camp three up the Lhotse face, you know? And so it was kind of this back and forth for me a little bit. That was, um, someone unnerving. That was probably the biggest challenge. Um, the physical aspect was difficult and, um, but it was, it was, uh, really cool to be able to be there in, um, a season where there wasn't anybody else there. And so for me and my style, I really enjoyed that and kind of, again, trying to be unique and Everest has yet to be someone in the fall since. So it's been 10 years and there, there was a group that tried this year. Um, and there was a big Serac kind of like ominously looming over base camp and they, they bailed. So hopefully somebody will knock it off again, but really cool opportunity wow. to be there he- then. Would you mind taking us through that, that, that day that you summited and what, oh, yeah. what yeah. you experienced on top of Everest, the tallest point yeah. on, the, on the planet? Well, so we had kind of spent that month or whatever, how many days getting gear up, fixing ropes or whatever. And through that process in the fall, it snows, it's colder. And so like anytime it snows, the fixed lines get buried. And it takes a lot of effort at altitude to pull those fixed lines, especially they've been drifted in out. And um, so we're kind of at the point now we're like, all right, let's just have a good weather window. But then there's also this, like, if it snows again, we're fucked because there's just a ton more work. And so I had a buddy of mine from who I work with in Antarctica, who's actually a Belgian, who's a weather forecaster. Um, And he, he can sit at his computer in, Belgium and forecast Everest. And he's like, all right, October 15th, 16th, you got a good weather window or, or October, I don't know, or 13th or 15th, maybe, but on 15th, it's snowing at all levels. And so we are like, all right, let's do it. So the 13th, we leave, we go up to camp, we go all hike all the way up to camp two, spend the night there. Next night, get up to camp three, which is around 20, 4,000 feet on the Lhotse face. It's just a small little area carved out there. There's not much there. Next morning we wake up, go up the rest of the Lhotse face across the yellow band over the Geneva spur, and then get up to the South call in the late afternoon. South call is kind of like a big football flat area. And it's such a relief after being on the Lhotse face, you know, cause it's just the Lhotse face just goes up forever. And it's just not, terribly steep but steep enough for somebody like me from the midwest that's like okay i don't really feel great up here um 
and so then we kind of hunkered down, had some soup, and then began our summit like at midnight. And a couple of the Sherpas had gone up with some rope ahead of us. And then me and another one of the Sherpas left at around midnight. And then we caught them right at about sunrise. Um, and, um, or it was the yellow band. We caught them at the Geneva Spur maybe. Anyway, um, and, uh, and then we waited and we got up, kept climbing, kept climbing, and finally got to the South Summit. <clears throat> and the weather was just shit. I mean, we could see this kind of like, well, first of all, it was incredible to be out there. And, you know, when we started climbing, it was dead quiet. It was calm. Stars were just like right there all around, you know, it's like you could reach up and touch them. And then, and then you watch this sunrise and you're like looking down at the sunrise, you know, it's just incredible. And this beautiful mountains everywhere, just like other tall mountains. And then, and then this line of clouds kind of rolling in that bad weather. And uh, we got to the South summit and it was just a total whiteout, just a total whiteout. And I don't know if you remember, if you saw the movie into thin air, but, uh, or in the book, it's where Rob in the movie, they do a pretty good job of like Rob Hall's like kind of like talking to his wife on the phone. And he's yeah. kind of like, that's where, he, that's where that is at the South wow. summit. And, um, and between the South summit and the Hillary step, there's a, it kind of comes down a little bit and there's a long ridge and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a stark drop off. And, uh, it was just like a whiteout. You can't see anything. So like, I don't know if you've ever been a whiteout, you know, we, a lot of ski areas or whatever, we have them all the time at polar travel. You can't see anything. It's like being inside of a ping pong ball. And so it doesn't take much to just be like, you're done. And, um, we also ran out of fixed line because we were bringing it all up. Normally in the spring, you've got a bunch of chirper groups that are bringing up rope over the course of a couple of days, fixing ropes, coming back down. And they, they all kind of share that task. We were just had our rope with us. And so we ran out of fixed line and we still got to get across this ridge line. And so I was like, we're fucked, man. I'm like, we should turn around. This is, I've been in enough situations. Like it's starting to get, it wasn't crazy late, but it was like 11. Um, and I was like, I, you know, I've been in enough situations to know, like, this is not how things end really well. And this one guy was, uh, cheering was like, you sure? I'm like, I'm pretty. And I was like, I didn't want to answer him. Cause he's like, you sure? Cause he would, you know, we, we all knew what the cars were and I, and I like, didn't answer. I'm like, well, let's just wait. And so we found some old rope underneath the uh south summit tied it up a little bit granny knot got over one of the guys led up the hillary step um it will it clear so we just were just laying in the snow there for a while and then it just there was a there is a a blue donut that just opened up right above us and then one of the guys went up led up the hillary step and i just jammed my hand straight in there like in just in the snow and just didn't look or, you know, just fo you just focus right in. I mean, I, I'm not a adrenaline junk. I don't have that gene. So I got to really, it's like, I'm, I'm tightening the screws as hard as I can to just, you know, not think about this other stuff. But once you get up over the Hillary step, it's just a nice little walk up to the summit. And, uh, and so we did that we got up there and it was just, to me, it was a relief. Um, 
not about necessarily like being on the top of the world or whatever, but that we had just done it and now we could focus on getting down. And, um, and so we weren't, we weren't up there for very long. And, uh, as we turned around the just stuff, we got across, got back down the Hillary step, got up to the South summit and then just weighed out, you know? And so we had also, taken a bunch of our rope sections up. So we were kind of like had these empty sections of fixed line. And so we were kind of having to do some other stuff, um, you know, rope travel on the way down. That was like not fun uh, in, the, in these conditions. And finally got back down to um, the South Call. And it was like, I couldn't see anything. I was like on my hands and knees looking for footprints back to our tent or whatever. Um, and then rested up for that night and then came down the next day and in just like snow i mean just like we we waded through the whole western coomer just like knee deep snow man so we like just squeaked it out it was it was pretty wild and and then still had to go down the kumbu ice fall and it, I, it wasn't until i got my tent that night at base camp that i was like okay i just relax a little bit I'm such a relief. yeah <laughs> yeah it was a it was a nail biter wow that is incredible especially you know being up there and it, it, the, the blue sky coming out just for that, that moment that allowed you to make that, uh, yeah, that yeah. rush to the top. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. I would have turned, I mean, I was so close to turning around and, uh, you know, we just, we got lucky and that was, that was the bottom line on that one. Well, thank you for sharing that. That is epic. Truly, truly epic. Yeah. Uh, maybe one of the best stories we've had on, on the pod here. So thank you. Um, hey, you mentioned the uh, the North Pole several times, and you talked about uh, 62 days out on the ice. Was that the basis for your book on thin ice? Was that that so specific trip, or was that a different trip? No, that was actually my first North Pole expedition was 62 days. That was the first ever summer expedition to the North Pole. You know, I've, I've been kind of on this mission for a long time um, about doing these big expeditions to communicate about these places, to really use that human journey to be a springboard to talk about these bigger issues and for me the arctic ocean the north pole has always been this iconic place it's the place that i'm fascinated with and uh it's something that just keeps drawing me back and so you know we did 2006 trip there 2010 as part of the three poles and then I wanted to go back and, and kind of do a big film project as well as just travel in this unsupported style, a much more difficult style of expedition. Mm -hmm. And that was in 2014. So that's what, um, that trip is what uh, On Thin Ice is based off of. Okay. And uh, any epic moments from that particular trip? It sounds like there's epic moments every day. Uh, every day was on the way up to I the mean, North Pole. So, I mean, we stand out. Yeah. I mean, we averaged like, under three miles a day for the first three weeks of the trip by day 40 we still had 180 miles to go um you know having to swim across open water leads getting stalked and followed by polar bears you know almost running out of fuel i i mean the trip was just one incredible hardship after the next you know and um and as a result, a very incredible journey when it was all said and done as well. And, and compelling narrative. And where can we find the book on, on thin ice? Yeah, you can on Amazon or wherever you buy books, just Google on, on thin ice. 
Okay. Very good. Back to the three poles uh, expedition uh, real quick. Uh, I know that there's so many moments in each of those, um, each of those sections of, of, of that year. Can you boil it down to a top five? <laughs> um, I mean, I think the first would just be being in those places. You know, each one of those places is really unique. They have these amazing personalities. I think being a small person in a huge space is always something that's been compelling to me. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just love that. And it's also totally overwhelming in the same breath, you know, but imagine your life where you don't see anybody else for not just a day or a week, but you know, two months. And that's not like, Oh, you just not talking to somebody that you, you, you know, like that's walking by in the show. That's not seeing another soul. Um, and so that's a really incredible experience. I think any, any time I get that, it's, it's never lost on me. I think the culture of Nepal was a really incredible thing for me. You know, when I traveled to the North and South pole in the Arctic ocean, there's nobody else there. And so being able to learn about a different culture and be in a place, uh, interact with a lot of really incredible people was a really powerful experience for me. Learn about Sherpa, their religion, you know, um, just their demeanors, um, was, was really incredible. Um, I think the, the three, just pulling those trips together off is to me still amazing that I, um, you know, made it all happen and got lucky enough to be able to, um, be successful at each one of those. Cause like, you know, there's a million things that could go wrong just in each one of those legs, but to be able to put all three of those together in this successful ways to me dumbfounding to this day. Um, you know, I also think for probably the people that I traveled with, um, you know, we had a lot of, there were some arguments in there big time. Um, but you know, a lot of those people today I still correspond with and are good friends. Um, some of them aren't <laughs> <laughs> and that's fine. And then, um, yeah, I just think camping, I love camping. And so I got, you know, that year I spent over six months in a tent and that's a pretty cool thing. So not my record by any sense stretch, but still a good, good amount of time in the tent. That's a pretty good year. <laughs> yeah. Outstanding. Hey, Eric, you know where we are right now? I don't. We are at that time in the episode where I turn to you and ask you for your pro tip insight of the week. What can you share with our listeners that's going to make their next adventure that much better? Buy low and sell high. That's the best advice I could give anybody. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a huge fan of, of starting small. I think, um, you know, anytime that you can just take that first step and manage those variables you're going to have a lot more success farther down the road. So, um, you know, that doesn't, whether it's a, a little backpack trip or a, a full on polar expedition, doesn't matter. You just take that first small step and lots to be learned in those little things. Yeah. So I'm guessing you would not recommend that the, uh, an expedition to the North pole be anybody's first expedition no no i mean it's just there it's it, i mean expedition north pole antarctica might as well be mars you know like you look at what there there's nothing that sustains human life there um so you have this whole aspect of the gear um so you need the right gear that's going to withstand those conditions you you know you 
you need to understand how to use it, how to repair it. If it breaks that, that knowledge, you just don't, doesn't come out of nowhere. And so you need to be familiar with that. You also need to have a mind, an expedition mindset where you can endure a lot of that stuff. That doesn't come overnight either. I wish it did because I could have, you know, not done a lot of crying and had a lot of hardships as a result. But, um, you know, each one of these kind of facets is a really important part of the expedition and they take time. Um, that doesn't mean you need the most experience in the world, but there's a lot to be learned about making mistakes. Um, and it's pretty easy to make a mistake when the, when the consequences are lower. You know, you can come back. You're not going to lose a leg. You're not going to frostbite all your uh, fingers off. And so if you want to be successful at hard things, um, oftentimes it's, it's definitely better to, to uh, try to start small. I mean, I do a lot of gear testing and training just right in my backyard. Like I set up the tent and, and just go right out here. Um, I mean, you know, I have bigger things that I do as well to train, but it's, it's a lot of this stuff that really adds up and has some big impacts and, and hopefully influences my success a lot. Right. And I wanted to ask you a question. I know that it is both hard physically and it's hard mentally. So that's a given, but uh, the, the three poles, uh, was, that, was that harder physically or mentally for you? I mean, I was back in society in between those trips. So it wasn't like it was this continuous thing. Um, I think the mental part of these big expeditions is always harder than the physical. Um, and it's, but it's this challenge because they're related. Your physical body is really influences your mind and vice versa. And so you can't really separate them at times, but you know, when you're dealing with these big objectives of, and these really far away, far reaching, almost impossible goals, like you got to white knuckle it a lot of the time. And it's not easy to, to reel it in because, um, you know, you're barely holding it together and you're also on the edge in terms of like where you are physically, but also just mentally in that, that layer after layer of stress. So the mental part of expedition of bigger expeditions is, is, is always a challenge. It never, <laughs> maybe it's got a little easier, but not much, man. Yeah. Wow. So there you have it. That's it. Season two, episode six is in the books. I hope our listeners enjoyed our time with Eric and I want to thank him for joining us this week. Eric, how can our listeners keep up with you on social media and where can they find updates on your latest adventures? Uh, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at EL Explorer, Facebook, Polar Explorer, Eric Larson, or you can just find my website, ericlarsonexplorer.com. Have all sorts of updates going on all the time. Fantastic. Remember to check out the pod on social media as well. We are on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you have comments or clips you want to share, you can send it to me at johnfreakinmuir at gmail.com. Eric, you mentioned quite a few uh, book titles and other types of media that you did in preparing for some of your polar explorations. We also always are looking for good recommendations for some adventure media. Do you have a, a particular book title or documentary or other uh, source oh, yeah. of adventure that our listeners could tune into to kind of stay connected to the outside world. Yeah. I mean, there, I, I, there's so many good books out there. Um, you know, I, I've been a fan of polar exploration forever. And so there are some really incredible books out there from explorers of the past. And, you know, one of mine is favorites is farthest North, uh, which is a guy Friedhof Nansen from uh, he's from Nor Norway. 
one of the first guys to try to reach the North Pole by freezing his ship. And it's a story that kind of rivals Shackleton's story. Shackleton, of course, is another great story and, and, and uh, incredible, um, you know, just epic story of survival, tale of survival. So there's a few different books about Shackleton that I've read. There's, there's another great one called Shackleton's Forgotten Men, um, which is about the other expedition that was supposed to be bringing supplies to meet him along the way, which also met with a, a, quite a bit of mishap, which is pretty incredible um, as well. Wow, I didn't know about that. I've read Endurance, which was quite the story about Shackleton and the, the South Pole. And the biggest surprise yeah. on Endurance is that nobody died. Yeah, it was an incredible, incredible amount of leadership and, and, uh, perse- and perseverance too. Yep, that's awesome. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap from the John Freaking Muir Studio. Any shout outs to any potential listeners out there, Eric? I'm all good. Enjoy. All right. Thanks, Snow. Thank you for tuning in. Always remember the trail is the trail. It doesn't care if you want to go downhill. It doesn't care if it's almost dark and you're looking for a campsite. The trail is the trail. Embrace the suck.